I heard a great story this week that I wanted to pass along to you. And I think it's very much related to this uh, current message series I'm doing. It's about a guy who found himself in a supermarket a number of weeks ago. And sort of lane after shopping lane, aisle after aisle, he found himself in back of this uh, mom and young daughter, maybe two, three years old or so. Just at that point, really starting to become very, very verbal, as he found out. And they were going down like the cereal aisle. And this two, three-year-old got very wanting mind, shall we say. Ooh, mine, I want, I want, I want. Like the sugar cereal and... Mom just kind of breathed, this guy observed. We'll be home soon, we'll be home soon. Oh, Monica, it's okay. Monica, it's all right. We're almost to the shot, almost to the checkout aisle. It's okay, it's okay. Little girl, calm down. Next aisle, this guy found this mother and daughter in, had some candy in it. And this little girl started to get even more desirous. Oh, I want that. I want that. I want that. I want that. Uh, and almost, almost to that level of, of, you know, freak out stage. And the mom, just very calm, very civil. Monica, it's okay. We're almost to the car. We're going to be out of here really soon. It's all right. It's all right. We're going to be home really, really soon. Monica, it's okay. And then this man found them, himself in back of the mother and the daughter in the actual checkout aisle. And there were candy bars there. And the full-on meltdown began. I will not pretend to tell you what a two- to three-year-old really sounds like. Those of you are parents, I'm sure I couldn't possibly approximate what that sounds like. But this child had to have this candy bar. And the complete meltdown that had started back in the cereal aisle beginning exploded. And the mother was there, very calm, very civil. Monica, it's all right, we'll be in the car soon. Monica, it really is okay. We're going to be on the way home really shortly. Monica, it's all right. Monica, it's all right. And this guy was really impressed. He's thinking, I don't have the parenting skills to be able to pull this off. And then he saw them outside getting into their car. Little girl strapped in the seat in the back. And after the storm was... You know, completely passed out. I'd spent it all. And he went up to this mother. And he said, I got to tell you, the amazing parenting work you've done with your daughter, Monica. I never could have done that. I would have freaked out a long time ago. The mom turned to this guy and said, her name is Julie. I'm Monica. True or false? Let's say it's true. I love this story. I love this example of dealing with stress in a productive way. And that's what I'm going to talk about here today in this message series, how to be happy. About how we can maintain through difficult times in our lives when everything is stressing us out. How is it we actually can maintain some connection with what we want to call happiness? This past week, some of you might have heard that the first President Bush and former President Clinton, they agreed to be chairs of something called the New National Institute for Civil Discourse. It's going to be meeting convening at the University of Arizona, very fittingly, not very far away at all from where that atrocious abominable shooting was last month, this new Institute for Civil Discourse. These are stressful times in the life of our nation. And actually, I think they should be stressful. 
We have put off a lot of conversations about a lot of things that are really important for far too long. And so we're feeling this stress right now, many of us as citizens, especially if we try and pay attention to the news. And next week, I want to talk about how some of our apprehensions and misapprehensions about what really might make us happy collectively as a nation really influence our own individual levels of happiness. But where I want to start today is where I think it was the Taoist philosopher and poet Lao Tzu talked about that. If there's going to be peace in the world, there has to be peace between the nations. If there's going to be peace between the nations, then there has to be peace in the cities. And if there's going to be peace in the cities, then there has to be peace in the neighborhoods. If there be peace in the neighborhoods, there has to be peace in the home. If there's going to be peace in the home, there really has to be peace in the heart. That's what I want to focus on here today. How can we cultivate the habits of heart that allow us to experience, yes, even happiness in difficult times? One way that we can entirely lose our connection with happiness as a meaningful part of our lives is by feeling that happiness is only a feeling. Then the intrusion of any single negative thought will entirely wreck the whole thing as if someone went in and chipped away a piece of the hope diamond and ruined its beauty and its flavor. But instead, if happiness is a state of being and not just a feeling, then in fact, I think we can remain happy even when we are struggling in this life. I must tell you from my own experience as someone who wrestled with for over two decades of his life alcohol and understood what it was like to search and to crave for happiness from something very far outside myself. If happiness is the quest to feel good all the time, I almost think all of us will fail. I know I will fail more than 50 and to be honest, sometimes even 75% of my life because those negative thoughts intrude. They are part of who we are. And if we are seeking and craving all the time to think that happiness is only feeling good, we have the recipe for addiction right there because we will always seek to be someplace else than where we are. But I do not believe that negative thoughts or negative feelings or bad feelings, quote unquote, are any sign of failure or deficiency within our happiness. My favorite definition of happiness and the one that I've been working off of this entire message series is deceptively simple. It's by Tal Ben-Shahar who talks about, and if you've been here before, you've heard me say this, that happiness is the ability to experience pleasure and purpose. It is the ability to experience, yes, joyful feelings, but also to combine them with the experience of deep meaning in our lives. For me, happiness is always much more than just a feeling. It is a call to flourish in this life. It is a part of our own Unitarian Universalist tradition. It goes back to the very roots of our tradition. And if there's one red thread throughout all parts of our living spiritual tradition, it is this. We are called in ways daily, every single day, to shape our spiritual character and to recognize that right here, right now, not for some other place, some other time, that the birthing of the meaning of our lives can go on. In the very first universalist statement of faith in 1803, it's something called the Winchester Platform. Look it up, Google it if you want. It's all public domain. It sounds very archaic right now, but one thing really stays with me is that they said in 1803, in the very beginnings of this movement in America, that happiness and holiness belong together. That to be holy is to be happy, and to be happy is to be holy. They were talking about happiness as something more than just a pleasurable, momentary feeling. The first universalist theologian, a guy named Hosea Ballou, who was here in Philadelphia well over 175 years ago, 
He said that God's will, and this is a word you don't hear very much anymore, is to happify human beings. He said we were all in the process of happification. Now, what does that mean? I don't understand God. I don't experience God as a person. And so I depart from Hosea Ballou on that. But what I do agree with and what I do experience, what he said then that is true now, is that we are all born with the capacity in this life to thrive. That is a radical spiritual notion, so different from the time in which he was preaching and even different from what many people believe now. If we are born into a tradition or into a place that says we are inherently depraved, we are born as sinners. We are born inherently broken rather than inherently whole. There is no place for an understanding of happiness as the ability to thrive. Instead, our tradition says that as much struggling as much difficulty as there is in our lives, there is still inherent wholeness within us. Indeed, it is the most essential part of our nature and that life itself is a call to make good on that wholeness that we were born with. Even the Beatitudes, you know, Jesus' Sermon on the Mounts, you've probably heard it so many times in your life. Do you know what that actually translates in? Blessings for happiness. The Beatitudes are a recipe, they would say, over 2,000 years ago for living a happy life. I particularly love that within the Buddhist tradition, very similar to our own Unitarian Universalist tradition, one of what they call the four limitless qualities, the four divine abodes, if you will, is joyfulness. Joyfulness, equanimity, compassion, and loving kindness. What they're saying is that we have the capacity within us to experience joyfulness, not just as something that we might wait for someday, but to cultivate it within ourselves right here and right now. To me, that calls out very much to what we talk about with our own DNA here at Wellsprings, that we can come to know the divine by living fully, by loving generously, and by being who we are called to be. I think the only way we do that is by understanding as happiness as more than something than just a feeling. More, much more than just getting what we want, as those who preach what's called the prosperity gospel believe in. That truly, if we're blessed, we're going to prosper. And they often mean prosper in terms of getting a lot of stuff that you really desire. Not there's anything wrong with that, as Seinfeld would say. But... That happiness is something much deeper than that because sometimes the way that we are built, if we get a lot of stuff that we want, we just end up wanting more and more and more of it. I spent a good portion of my life and indeed the early to middle part of my 20s. I can joke about it now, but it wasn't real funny for me then. As what I called myself as a triple threat neurotic. I had active obsessive compulsive disorder and acute depression and almost daily anxiety attacks. Happiness has not been easy for me to cultivate in my life. I joked a couple weeks ago, but it was true, that I considered brooding to be one of the essential food groups. One of the greatest sources of anxiety for those of us who have experienced trouble in cultivating happiness 
is first to think that it's a feeling. And if we're not feeling happy, then we cannot be happy. But even deeper than that is this, the kind of judgment that believes that unless we are being good enough, unless we are producing the right things, unless we are forcing ourselves into feeling good all the time, that's where the seed of my own addictions come from. And somehow we will not ever experience happiness. That happiness is probably some kind of payoff. And if we only work hard enough for it, then someday we will get there. And we can call ourselves happy people. For me in my life, thinking of happiness in that way has been a recipe for disaster. I've come to think of it differently. I've come to think of it as the wonderful teacher Sylvia Borstein who authored a great book called Happiness is an Inside Job. She is the founder of the Spirit Rock Buddhist community in Northern California. And I read an interview with her in which she she talked about her upbringing in a Jewish family in Brooklyn and with a mother who was very, very ill and really being raised by a grandmother who doted on her, but also told her the truth about life. She wrote, when my grandmother was not willing to respond to my childhood bouts of I'm not happy, she'd often say, where is it written that you're supposed to be happy all the time? I think that was the beginning of my spiritual practice because now I sort of say the same thing, that life is inevitably challenging and how we do live in those moments that it is challenging. This introduces us to wisdom. And it starts first in learning not to complicate our lives more than they already complicated. For me, so much of cultivating true happiness comes down to this very simple mathematical equation. Sad, it's not even an equation, it's actually an equivalence, I guess. But, you know, I mean, the last math course I took was probably over 20 years ago. Sad does not equal bad. Very, very simple, but perhaps recognize within yourself. I recognize it within myself that time in which I make that equivalency at so many moments that because I'm feeling sad, because I'm feeling mad, the equivalency is almost automatic. That I must be doing something wrong simply than life sometimes gets difficult. This is why I started with that story of Monica the mom. In that moment, it was challenging. In that moment, it was stressful. And so what did she do? She didn't try to control her child. Her kid was going to freak out. (laughs) Her kid was very much in touch with the wanting mind. I want, I want, I want. She wasn't going to try and control that and say it shouldn't be so. Instead, she used a couple different tools. This is impermanent. We'll be home soon. And she used wisdom and humor to guide herself in that stressful situation. I almost love that path that she chose because it's a kind of path of non-resistance. The stress is here, and it's all right. In this deepest way, I believe it is truly permission-giving with ourselves that allows us just to know that life gets difficult and it doesn't have to obliterate us. The other model that I use is this fellow who some of you may recognize if you go to the next one. Recognize him? Rosie Greer, you might recognize this, free to be you and me. If you were a child of the 70s like I was or a parent during the 70s, you remember this. I'm not going to try and sing. We probably should do a free to be you and me song at some point in the future. They're very, very singable. 
Well, Rosie Greer, who was an athlete, a defensive end, a tough guy, he was one of the men who pulled the gun from Sirhan Sirhan's hands just after he, he had fatally wounded Robert Kennedy. This was a tough guy. What I remember most about Rosie Greer is singing. It's all right to cry. Crying takes the sad out of you. It might make you feel better. That was my first permission to recognize that negative emotions did not necessarily equal failure. Now, it took me a long time between hearing that to really get it and to really apply that within my life. If it is all right to cry, it means that we don't have to feel pleasure all the time. And it does not mean that somehow happiness is lost to us. It means that even in stressful times, we can maintain, as the 12-step traditions encourage me every day of my life, to maintain what we call conscious contact. To remain present with the very core of our lives and the truth of our lives and the deepest truth that nothing can take away from us. Yes, indeed, the limitless qualities of our existence. For a good portion of my life, of my spiritual life, I prayed for relief. Sometimes it works and sometimes it did not. If it worked... It tended for me to be a temporary fix. Now, my prayer life is much more along the lines of praying with rather than praying for. Praying with those limitless capacities that I think Buddhism talks about, about that process and that ability to flourish that our Unitarian and Universalist ancestors promised us, That if we pray with these capacities, I truly think we can understand that very interesting line in the Christian scriptures that says that all of our lives we can pray without ceasing. But I don't think it's a matter of praying for things. I think it is that way of living with ourselves as we are and learning, especially in difficult times, not to create that equivalency between sad equals bad. The single greatest compliment that I ever received in my life was also at the time the single greatest curse that I ever received. I was 28 or 29, and I preached the message, a short homily, at one of my best friend's weddings where I was also co-officiating with another clergy member. And it got back to me that after... The sermon and after the service, one very, very old member of that church who had known one of my friends since they'd been five years old told her, your friend that preached during your service, during your ceremony, he shared the love of kindness of God about as well as anyone I have ever seen do it. Wow, that felt enthralling to me. That felt like such a confirmation of my call. And by that point, I had only been ordained about a year or so as a minister. I felt exhilarated. And that was the problem. (laughs) Because the high from that eventually wore off. And I started to hear those words as, in fact, a curse. Because every moment in which I didn't feel loving or kind, I thought, wow, 
I have really fooled them. I thought in that moment, I wasn't being my true self. But I no longer see happiness in that way as a rule to have to aspire to. It's one of the reasons I said last week that for me, the opposite of happiness is not sadness. The opposite of happiness is loneliness. The deepest loneliness any of us will feel is not being in touch with our true selves. I'm going to start to wrap this up here. But I wanted to share with you the biggest blessing that I've ever received, at least in sermon form. It is by the great academic theologian Paul Tillich, whose words are not at all Germanic or Ronan sentences here or from his five volumes of systematic theology, but from his wonderful, powerful message called You Are Accepted. To me, this is the deepest path of happiness I know. And it is the opposite of loneliness. Paul Tillich wrote, You are accepted. You are accepted, accepted by that which is greater than you and the name of which you do not know. It is in such moments when we can accept the fact of our acceptance that help us love our lives that make us accept ourselves not in our goodness or in our self-complacency, but in our certainty of the eternal meaning of our life. And these sentences are really true, he wrote. We cannot force ourselves to accept ourselves. We cannot compel anyone to accept themselves. But sometimes, sometimes it happens that we have the power to say yes to ourselves that peace enters into us and puts us back in touch and makes us whole. And that self-hate and that self-contempt can disappear. And we know that our self is simply reunited with ourself. I love this understanding of grace and indeed of happiness. Because what it told me, and now what I truly believe, is that we cannot lose this capacity for wholeness. We can forget it. We can choose not to cultivate it. But it is always there for us to cultivate it. For me, this turns so much of my previous life on its head, in which I always seemed, and indeed so many of us still struggle with this idea that unless I was at 100% of what I should be achieving all the time, that I was only failing. Flipping it to the other side now, what Tillich, what the Four Limitless Qualities, what Hosea Ballou, what so many spiritual teachers invite us to see, is that the opportunity and the invitation to flourish and to be truly happy these are already planted within us. And that our only job, but it's a job for every day, is to give our consent. And to say yes to ourselves. And to give ourselves permission that yes, when we are joyful, to experience it and love our lives. 
And yes, even when we are sad and even when we are struggling, to still say, yes, we can love our lives and our lives can be reunited with that deeper life. Every week in our meditation, I say this, and I truly mean it. That's why I say it every week. That peace and presence are native to the very soil of our lives. So today, even if you are barely holding on, may you recognize that all of us, all of us have the capacity to dig in. To dig into what is already there and has already been given us. And to make the choice to say yes. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Original source of affirmation of our being. Divine home. May we recognize what a radical and beautiful notion it is that we are part of a tradition that invites us to recognize our wholeness and to say, yes, sometimes we are broken as well, but that this wholeness never goes away and even in a great paradox says in our brokenness we can still maintain our integration. May we live with paths and in paths of peace, not resisting the truth of our lives, but accepting it and accepting ourselves for what we are and accept the fact of that acceptance by that which is bigger than each and every one of us and very much a part of us. To live from this place of our original wholeness. Today, today, may we say yes. Amen.